0: So please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can, and often does, happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening.
1: Good evening, everyone. Good evening. We're going to get started. Dan, can we lower the tunes? How's everyone doing? Yay! All right. Thank you for coming out on this on this beautiful spring day. We appreciate it, um, and uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, we're we're excited tonight as we always are because we have two great readers tonight. I think you probably know both of them already. Um, Kelly Ropeson and Chandler Clang Smith are going to read for us tonight, we're, we're especially excited because. Uh, I've, I've been a fan of, of their work for a while, and uh, so it's always great to hear uh, hear them read, hear, hear uh, authors that I love read for us. Um, KGB Fantastic Fiction is a reading series that's held on the third Wednesday of every month. It's always free. We never charge a cover. All we ask is that you buy a drink, hard or soft, and uh, tip your bartenders. They're working hard to keep you hydrated, so please do that for us. Please keep the series going. It's been going since the late 90s i think um, and i think ellen this might be actually my 10 year anniversary did really? i yeah i think yes, tonight me i don't know <laughs> i wasn't actually like angling for an applause or anything i just realized that literally in this moment i think i started in march 2008 i have no idea so yeah <laughs> this would be this would be 10 years it's crazy so, wow does that it just me? what does that mean for you yeah, well, how long have you been doing I don't it for
2: know. I think
1: you may at least five more years than me, maybe, maybe know, six. Maybe okay. Anyway, um, i I love it. I love this series. And and uh, for those who uh, it's the first time here, I hope you join us. We have a mailing list. Uh, if you go to our website kgbfantasticfiction.org, uh, you click on the mailing list link on the side. You can uh, sign up. We send you like you know two or three emails a month just to remind you of the readings. Um, or you can just follow Eleanor and myself on Twitter, which will tweet about the, r- the series. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Word Bookstore could not make it tonight. Uh, their bookseller had travel problems because of the weather, so uh, we don't have the authors' books tonight. But it's the authors good. wait. The authors brought some of their own, right? So um, Kelly has how many copies? Do you? Oh, we have five. Books. So, so four, yeah. we have five. Extra copies of, can I can I ho- hold it up? God's monsters and the lucky peach. So we have five copies of that, and uh, Chandler, the sky is yours. Two copies of that. Two copies of sky is <laughs> yours. <and Europe>, so <laughs> be aggressive <laughs> at the break. Come up. Um, you can get them from the authors and get them signed. Um, what else? Any other announcements? We have. Uh, they have a
2: trivial contest in the middle. That's I right. I promised my my bribe was to bring some of my own books to give away if you showed up here tonight, so I brought a few
1: samples of my own books to give away. And will you sign them? Of course
3: we'll sign them. Of course. Yes, yes, of
1: course. So stay around for that. Uh, April 18th, next month, we have Livia Llewellyn and John Padgett. Um, If you haven't heard Livia read, she's amazing, and... I have not heard John Padgett read, but I love his fiction. But Livia uh, reading aloud—it's—it's a—it's a—it's yeah. a—it's in your face.
2: Whenever she it's means. worth it. Um, she's been reading. For, I read her new novel, which is just finished and not sold yet. And it's as I wrote her, as she uses a blurb, it's a smack in the face. It's a smack in the <laughs> face, and that's <laughs> what it's way. like. Yes, in a <clears> good way. way. I don't know if she'll be reading from
1: that. Okay. Uh, May sixteenth, Tina Connolly and Carolyn M. Joachim. You can cheer, it's okay. June twentieth, Lawrence Connolly and Mary Robinette Cole. Yeah. July eighteenth, Brooke Bolander and Angus McIntyre, Angus Wave. Uh, August fifteenth, Jeffrey Ford and Michael Wehunt. Woo-hoo. September nineteenth, Kids Johnson and Patrick McGrath. Uh, October seventeenth, Lawrence Schoen and Tim Pratt. So we got a nice um, year lined up for you. Uh so I hope you join us. Um Alright, so on to our first reader.
2: That's what it's going to
1: do. Sorry? It's going to keep falling down. Alright, I won't touch the lamp then. <laughs> uh, Chandler Clang Smith is the author, most recently, of The Sky Is Yours, which was published by Hogwarts C- Crown in January 2018. Hogarth Crown, sorry. Thinking oh, like, uh, I'm thinking uh, Hogwarts. No. Um, <laughs> A graduate of the Creative Writing MFA program at Columbia University, she's currently serving as a juror for the Shirley Jackson Awards for the second year in a row. She teaches and tutors in New York City. Here's Chandler.
3: Hi everyone, and Ellen and Matt, thanks so much for having me, awesome. I'm a big fan of this series, so it's such a treat to be reading here. Um, So I'm going to read an excerpt from my novel, The Sky is Yours, which is set in a ruined city under attack by two fire-breathing dragons. And before this section, the Baroness Swan Lenore Dahlberg, a young woman whose mother was murdered by home invaders, journeys to Torchtown, a prison colony in the lower city, to find those responsible and take her revenge. And although Torchtown is a prison colony, it's it's also like sort of a city within the city that has its own own laws and and norms. Um, But unfortunately, in this underworld, the crime boss behind the attack, Eisenhower Sharkey, becomes her guide, closest confidant, and would-be paramour before she discovers the truth. Sharkey is also a maker and purveyor of chaw, a psychedelic substance. So after a brutal confrontation, where she finds out that he's responsible for her mother's death, Swanee, um, unable to carry out her vengeance, but also unable to forgive his heinous crime, ODs on his stash of chaw, only to learn in this section that the drug has far different properties than she previously suspected. Sharky lets himself in the front. All the lights are out inside. She might be upstairs in her bed seems appropriate for Torchtown to have a fire engine loudly proceeding through. Um, I'll start over. Sharky lets himself in the front. All the lights are out inside. She might be upstairs in her bed or on his couch. He pictures her nestled under the afghan, paging through one of his books, sucking on her fingers while she teeth, reading, and for pleasure, Most torchy girls don't even know how. The luxury comes to her as natural as breathing. He doesn't know why it stirs him, but it does. He's about to climb the steps up to the second floor when he hears her singing in the showroom, a lullaby offered up to the dark, a disembodied voice trying to soothe itself to sleep. It's a pretty tune. He steps inside and flips on the electrolier. Swanee is all balled up in the corner, hugging her knees. I committed suicide, she whispers, her baby doll eyes even wider and more vulnerable than usual, despite the shiner. Oh, my God, I've taken poison. What did you take? It's a strain not to slap her in the face. What did you take? I, I don't remember. The, the pirate flavor to start with, talk sense. I got antidotes upstairs. you just got to tell me exactly what you took. And then there was the funeral home and cherry cordial... Sharky slowly looks at the floor around where she's sitting. Gnawed down plug-ends litter the carpet around a weirdly fragrant spittoon. Golden apple jam, that one I recall for certain. Sharky sighs, straightens his hat. Put your face on, we're going out. Excuse me, I'm quite certain I overdosed. I've been chewing for hours. Yeah, you overdosed all right, but on the wrong thing. Chalk can't kill you, you crazy broad. Where'd you even get an idea like that? you told me it brings you very close to death you said that's not what I meant well what did you mean you're gonna have an interesting night try not to puke in the car (laughs) Sharky calls Duluth on the walkie-talkie and tells him to bring around the limo right away he picks up his backpack from the showroom closet then he wraps then he wraps Swanee in her chinchilla and leads her outside Oh, how lovely, it's snowing, she murmurs, reaching her hand up skyward. These things you see, they're not really there, Sharky informs her. That's important to remember. You mean the snowflakes? Yeah, and whatever comes after. He opens the car door for her, shields her head as he guides her in, gets in himself, and slams the door. Drive us to Nick's, Sharky tells Duluth, then slides the privacy screen shut. Who the hell knows what might come out of Swanee's mouth next? He'd rather keep the big guy deaf to it. Though right now, Swanee isn't saying much of anything. She's studying her hands like they hold some special fascination for her. Do you read Palms? She inquires. Palms? Can't say that I do. I have a very short lifeline, you know. Seems like that should be the least of your worries, if you're so set on offing yourself. He looks at her, snuggled in her fur, sonsy and ringlet maned, that pillowy mouth in its eternal pout. So soft. She only shot him once. Why'd you try a thing like that, anyway? After everything I've done for you, you're a real selfish girl. She reaches into her handbag and takes out her compact. It was the only way I could escape you. Escape me? I didn't lock you up. I didn't chain you to a radiator. I didn't hang you upside down by your ankles. You could have escaped just fine. No. No, I couldn't have, powdering her eye. All those books you read, you're too dumb to find the door. Her mirror clicks shut. The only way to escape you is death. And why is that? Because I can't live without you. She says it sweetly. Sharky looks out the window. He's boiling over inside. But not with rage with nothing he's used to. It's like the way she says Howie, a name nobody ever called him before, but once she said it, it was his. I can't live without you. The words are his now. She can't take him back. He wants to hear him again, up close, hot in his ear. He wants to press her to him, stroke her and squeeze her until she can't help but say him over and over. I can't live without you. Nobody ever loved him before. The feeling's too big for his chest, for his limo, bigger than the outer walls of Torchtown, big as all outdoors. He won't look at her till it passes. Maybe it'll pass. Why not live with me then, he asks huskily. I can be nice. She shakes her head. She still isn't afraid to contradict him. No, you can't. Nix is a former theater. It's slide-lettered marquee out front still strung with stranded characters like an unfinished crossword puzzle. They're in a part of Torchtown, Swanee scarcely recognizes, within sight of the northmost outer wall. Automated sniper turrets and a filigree of barbed wire assert themselves against the moon. Duluth parks at the curb and they disembark. Where are you taking me? Swanee asks, as if there is any doubt. Except for Nix, the rest of the block is burned to the ground, a sootscape of dumpster huts and cinderblock forts, a graveyard of architecture haunted by the poorest of the poor, the lowest of the low. She draws the chinchilla coat tighter around herself, watching for the dragons. But all is still. For now. Though the snow seems to have passed, she still feels its icy pinpricks on her skin. You ought to see this place while it's still here. It's a relic, like me. Nick's box office is illuminated. A dog-collared hostess waits in a cage of gold and glass. When she notices Sharky, she immediately presses a button that releases the door for admittance, with a buzzing that sounds exactly like a dentist's drill. Another building with electricity. Swanee thought the chaw shop was the only one. Sharky holds the door open and gestures her inside. The theater has been converted into a supper club of sorts, Most of the seats have been unbolted and removed to make space for dark cloaked tables, each lit by a single candle, and mismatched chairs that wobble on the sloping floor. Down in the front, just before a stage shrouded in crimson velvet, is a mostly empty parquet dancing area, manned by a bucket drummer who's keeping his rhythms to a steady pulse. This minimalist tableau is at jarring odds with the room that contains it, a cathedral to amusement worked over with orient embellishments and festoons rendered in plaster, and domed up top with a ceiling mural of constellations, their dots connected with silvery spider-web precision against the midnight blue. You like it? Sharky asks her. I always used to come here when I was real chewed out. It's so strange. Swanee has never been out to a restaurant before and is most curious to experience it for the first time in her present condition. Colors have taken on a hazy, impressionistic quality. Waiters, clad in white coats like surgeons, rove amongst the tables, carrying off the bones of the Eden. I used to know the guy who owned this place, one of my best customers, Nicodemus Satan Cannibal Jr. He took his name off an old inmate who ran the joint before him. Then he left it to some kiddie train, Nicodemus Satan Cannibal III. Pieces of work, all of them. Like a succession of kings. Swanee murmurs. Sharky signals the maitre d'. Hey, Rollo, seat us in the box. When Swanee was just a girl, Corona used to speak of thin places, locales where the membrane separating this world from the next was stretched to its outer limit, an unguarded border between the countries of before and after. Swanee has never before visited such a place in waking life, but tonight, reality feels permeable. She's uncertain how long she's been floating, viewing the dining room from the perspective of a lost soul above an operating table. She wonders how long she's been clutching Sharky's hand. Don't try to fight it, he advises her. His touch is her only tether to the physical world. His dusky red aura inhalos her body, holding her inside. It's only chemicals. Yes, but Howie, what does that even truly mean? Her own voice sounds so very muffled and distant. She wonders if it's audible to human ears. Love, hate, fear, joy, desire, religious ecstasy, imagination, perception itself, our entire interface with reality and the universe as we know it, can't every last one be attributed to a series of enzymatic reactions in the petri dish of the mind? Aren't they all only chemicals, too? If you could see your pupils right now, you'd know what I'm talking about. (laughs) With a pop, the chair asserts itself beneath Swanee at last. Her spirit reattaches to her physical form. They're at a table in a balcony, just the two of them, a brass guardrail holding at bay the hubbub below. a girl, says Sharky. Stay with me. The waiter arrives, a singularly unappetizing individual. Three of the fingers are missing from his right hand, And even before he speaks, his jittery energy upsets whatever weak equilibrium Swanee has achieved. Mr. Sharkey, good to see you again, sir. Would the two of you like to start with something to drink? She needs to get some food in her stomach, Sharkey pronounces. What are the specials? Tonight, we have the chef's signature rat balls. At least 70% harvested rat meat? and less than 8% sawdust served on a bed of something we found. Reminds me of polenta. It's good. (laughs) You got anything a little less revolting? She's from outside. Oh, I don't think I can eat, says Swanee. It's the most curious thing yet. A fog is rolling in, gray and muddlesome. And with it comes the sensation that the room is filling up, not merely with vapors, but with presences, malevolent and otherwise. Not in this weather we're having. You'll eat, Sharky tells her. He turns back to the waiter. Anything with less than 22% accounted for? You always were a numbers man, the waiter concedes, glancing at his missing fingers. Tendrils of miasma nudge the stumps. For the diner discerning enough to request another option, there's these cans of dead dog, all ground up. We've been mixing it with noodles. That's the stroganoff. (laughs) Sharky is skeptical. Never had dog meat from a can. It's got a picture of a dog on the label. (laughs) Following a menu's logic is impossible in this Merc. Swanee wonders why he can't just leave them be. That means it's for a dog, not from a dog. Listen, let's save some time here. I want you to go downstairs and tell your chef to make something fit for human consumption. We'll take two of those. At last, the waiter phases out of view. The fog now fills Swanee's entire frame of vision. Even just across the table, Sharky seems so far away. What's happening to me, she asks. I'm up in the clouds, and I can't come down. They're not clouds, and those weren't snowflakes either. No? Nah, they're smoke and ashes. Ashes, then smoke. Passing through, Sharky takes out his chaw wallet, removes a one-penny plug bringing back what they took. What do you mean? He works his jaw on the dose. When something's gone, it's gone for good. But it leaves a space behind. A negative space. It used to be that when I chewed, I'd see smoke and ashes dusting all over the negative spaces, making it so I could see what was missing. Sounds like that's starting to happen to you. But you said the things I'd see wouldn't be real. They ain't. Not anymore. Unlike the waiter, Sharky is a familiar of these myths. His melancholy allows him to dissolve ever so slightly into the air she breathes. How did you learn to make chaw? she asks. Same way the last Nick learned to run this place, an old inmate taught me. Your father? Not all of us grew up so cherished as yourself. The waiter returns triumphantly. We had a couple of these left in the deep freeze. Less than a year past expiration. Grandma Betty's Military Rations reads a logo printed on the clear plastic wrapper affixed to the top of the tray. Inside, a bloodless slab of protein lies alongside mysterious purees of yellow, green, and orange. Heart healthy. I like this place better under the old management, rumbles Sharky. But for once, Swanee isn't focused on the food. The waiter startles as she grasps him by the wrist. How extraordinary, she murmurs, examining his ruined hand. Where earlier she saw only stumps, she now sees fingers, tapering to elegant completion, rendered in translucent grayscale. The lined knuckles, the nails, even the whirling prints, all are delicately visible, sculpted from the ether. But wait, this didn't happen in a fire. The waiter glances at Sharky uncertainly. Sharky answers for him not a fire. As soon as she loosens her grip, the waiter skitters away. The smoke dissipates like the ashes before it. Swanee is out on a date with her mother's killer, a murderer of children, and an apparent torturer, too. She looks longingly down at the dining hall below. A saw player has joined the bucket drummer, and the parquet floor is filling with writhers and swears. I'd like to dance, she says. She doesn't add, alone but he hears it anyway. Stay where I can see you, and leave your coat. Swanee descends into the dining hall below. Without Sharky's anchoring presence, the floaty feeling returns. But this time, she doesn't discorporate. Instead, she's light, so very light, that her feet barely skim the ground. She's been heavy all her life, heavy of flesh, heavy of heart. But now, for the first time in recollection, Gravity is her friend. She moves into the crowd of torches, sparkers cocots all, and they move together, almost weightless, particles agitated by a flame. She lets herself forget. Swanee only stops dancing when she notices the cat, or rather, the space a cat left behind. The feline phantasm slips between the feet of revelers as lithe as a magician's scarf. Swanee works her way out from the throng to follow it as it stalks between the tables, finally leaping atop one to lap at an abandoned jar of embalming fluid. Here, kitty, Swanee coos, and the specter looks up, alarmed. Its ears are frayed, its left eye gouged. In its place is a hollow socket, seeping ectoplasm. A one-eyed, hooch-drinking ghost cat. Swanee's never had a pet, and it's too late to be choosy now. She takes another step toward it, and the cat leaps down, darting into the shadows, past an emergency exit sign and down a dim hallway to the right of the stage. Swanee isn't quite sure why she follows, but she does. Kitty, she calls, scaling some wooden steps, pushing aside a door marked performers only. The Felis domesticus is hiding, or else dematerialized. Swanee takes a look around. She's standing on the forsaken stage, the scene is still set for some long-ago production, most likely a musical or cabaret. Two chairs face each other across a narrow table, and instruments rest here and there, collecting dust. One in particular attracts her attention. It's as though it's been left out just for her. Swanee once called the flugel a tuned typewriter because that's what it resembles. The instrument before her now poises on a rickety stand, brass and badly kept. Its wing-like bellows faded out at the creases. Swanee places her fingers on the keys, 41 little me- metal discs indented for her fingertips, specifically for her fingertips, and taps out a few soft chords. The velvet curtain is thick enough to dampen the music. If she keeps it pianissimo, no one will notice she's back here. Close the door behind you. Swanee looks up. Her mother sits over at the table, glowing gray and transparent, smoking a cigarette. The puffs leaving her mouth look just like the rest of her, but while they dissolve, Pippi stays. Her left arm is invisible where it touches the light, slanting in from backstage. Mother, Swanee says. She wonders at her own unsurprise. But of course, this is exactly who she's journeyed here to meet. Thank you.
2: We have books of Kelly's to buy. Chandler has a couple of her books to sell, and I have books to give away. So how do we want to do this? We want to do a trivia thing. Reading ah,
3: <laughs> Okay. Okay. Yeah, that sounds good.
2: I have a variety of things. Any idea how to do it? Uh, what I have is I have a couple of copies of Mad Hatters and March Hares, which is one hours. of my. That. For that we could. I also have um, Best Horror Number Nine, a couple of copies. Um, which you can prepare for number ten, which is coming out in June. And number eight and one in number eight and one in number three. So what do you want to do? Do you wanna do you have any idea? Oh or? gosh,
4: well um <laughs> I don't know, I'm terrible at trivia stuff
2: or mm-hmm. no. who
4: uh, so here's here's a, a trivia <laughs> trivia question. What science fiction writer in the last ten years or so was um, convicted uh, of, of 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 like Assaulting a border guard. Peter Watts. Thank you. Watts. <laughs> yes, but you can't win. You can't win. <laughs> <laughs> so who so was the other? We p- said Peter Watts.
2: Who was it? Who was it? Angus? Was it you? Alrighty, All right. All you right, your guess. choice of which book would you like? First choice. It's a Canadian question. She's Canadian. Yeah. yeah. But I knew okay. that. It was a big scandal at the time. Yeah, yeah. Peter's not allowed to come back to the United States. No, he's not. He, uh, <laughs> yeah. Really, seriously. Yeah. Okay. Choose wisely. <laughs> or not. You can look, pick them up, look at them. You can touch them. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: right. oh, here uh, okay, okay. The okay. do you want other? an old one or uh, a current one? To number three,
2: number three, three, number eight, and number nine. Uh, number Nine's the nine. most recent.
4: Okay. Thank you. Anna, if oh, okay. okay. Next question. What uh, <laughs> and science fiction writer is Nebula nominee for this year? Nebula nominated science fiction writer in the n- novel category was a founder of IO9. Oh MOOCs. Well, yes. <laughs> Come <Cool>. on up. Laura <laughs> Elena Dolanoy. Do- Donnelly.
2: You have a known whole name and yeah. mentioned the book. Mention the book. Go ahead. Oh,
4: Annelise's book? Annelise's book. Autonomous. Autonomous. Yeah. Which it
2: has a queer robot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, oh, man. Best <coughs> best I'll take the Mad Hatter. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right.
4: Uh, we'll do one question. more
2: now, and then we'll do the rest after. One more now. Oh,
4: okay. Um, and then Does we'll anybody else you want to ask? Anyone have, have a question? Have. You read it so well. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, Woo. yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: We'll think of trivia, and then we'll do more after. Yeah. We'll do more after. But anyway, we're okay. taking a break for about 10 minutes, 15 min- maybe we'll 10 minutes, maybe 10 minutes. think of more questions. Think of more questions, yeah. right, and have a drink, and oh. enjoy yourself. Hi there. Welcome back. Welcome back to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. We have a few more trivia questions for you to get, so I can... Um, Dispose of four more of my books. <laughs> and they were saying I'm getting like 100 in the next three months more in you know, anyway. Uh, so we have some more um, trivia questions. The first one is pseudonyms. The, um, what is the real name of the writer who was named James Tiptree Jr.?
1: Who said Sheldon?
2: Was it you? Pick good book. <laughs> okay, she will be my. Vanna White is here, is as my assistant. Okay, all right, our second question. The author of, I was going to say Mad Hatter of um, Alice in Wonderland and Alice for the Looking Glass and what you found there is Lewis Carroll. What was his real name? Oh, God, God, God. Full name. Not just Carl. last name. Yeah, I mean, just what? Effort. What? Come on, you're getting there close. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> if you want it, you don't have to have it, but that's what you're, that's what you're competing for. <laughs> okay. Next question. Um, what's the name of the author... And the name of the book in which there is a planet named Winter in which gender is fluid. Oh. But you, someone said Le Guin first, but did you say. I got le- wind, but she got okay, you got first. both? Okay.
1: <laughs>
2: and the last question is who is Kelly married to? Very good (laughs) Yep And that's it Thank you And Alex is here My lovely wife, Alex Salmon Yes (laughs) Who is also an amazing writer So our next reader Is Kelly Robeson Who is the author of Gods, Monsters, and the Lucky Peach Last year she was a finalist For the John W. Campbell Award I heard Tinkling I'm, I'm someone who, I don't know, um, for best new writer. Her novella Waters of Versailles won the 2016 Aurora Award and was a finalist for both the Nebula and World Fantasy Awards. She has also been a... F- oh, it's a computer. It's his adding machine. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, she's also been a finalist for the Theodore Sturgeon Award and the Sunburst Award. And also you're up for the... Nebula yeah, Award no. again for A Human Stain, yeah. which is a novelette, a horror novelette, mind you, which is, I don't understand why it's up for the Nebula, but I'm happy it is. <laughs> <laughs> but the Nebula Award's supposed to be science fiction and maybe fantasy, but I don't think it's ever had many no, horror no, stories up. Horror. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, but so that's not
2: fantasy, and nah, not yeah, nah, gets in <laughs> yeah, mm, anyway, okay. <laughs> Her fiction appears at Tor.com, Uncanny, Asimov's, and Clark's World, and she is a regular contributor to Clark's World's Another Word column. Kelly lives in Toronto with her wife, SF writer A.M. Delamonica. Monica. Please welcome Kelly Robeson.
4: Thank you, everybody. I'm so excited to be here. This is uh, truly amazing, and it is so great that so many of you have come out... to watch me pose in front of the flashes. um, I'm going to be reading from my new novel, which is only out uh, for the last week. It's been amazing! It's called God's Monsters and the Lucky Peach. It won... Okay, so this is so amazing, right? Like, when you write a book, people review it, and they say (laughs) things about it that I'm going to have, like, tattooed on my body. One of the reviewers in Lightspeed called it Ruthlessly Genre. I'm like, I'm going to have that put right here. Like, I just feel so great about being just, like, something that I did described as ruthlessly genre. It's just amazing. And what he meant by that was, it's science fiction, and it doesn't hold hands for people who don't read science fiction. So, science fiction for science fiction readers. I think that's a good thing, because I'm one. All right, I'm going to read uh, the first chapter, and then I'm going to read a middle chapter, because... I kind of feel like it's a science fiction or it's a uh, time travel book. we should get into the time travel at least a little bit, because you all look like you deserve that. <laughs> Chapter one. The monster looked like an old grandmother from the waist up, but it had six long octopus legs. It crawled out of its broken egg and cowered in the muddy drainage ditch. When it noticed Shulgi, its jaw fell open exposing teeth too perfect to be human it recoiled and hissed oh shit 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 shulgi hefted his flail in one hand and his scythe in the other he knew his duty better than anyone other than the gods kings were made for killing monsters scene break on one of Calgary's wide, south-facing orchard terraces, Min pruned peach trees while paying vague attention to Essa's weekly business meeting. Min and her partners were all plague babies. They'd worked together for nearly 60 years, so unless a problem cropped up, a, an over-budget project or a scope creeping client, their fakes could handle the meeting nearly unmonitored. No problems this week, no bloody playing diva, Everybody just letting their fakes walk through the agenda. Everyone except for Kiki, the firm's ridiculously frenetic young admin. She was playing with an antique paperclip simulation, stringing them into ropes. The clips clicked against the table. Kiki, stop it, Min whispered. The sound is driving me nuts. I didn't know you were lurking, Kiki replied. I thought I was all alone here. The meetings are important. Just sit still and listen. Easy for you to say. You don't spend every Monday morning with a bunch of fakes. I'll bet you're halfway up a tree right now, aren't you? Min didn't reply. She was in a tree, four legs wrapped around the trunk of Calgary's oldest, Peach. She'd just started the late winter pruning. Below her, bots gathered the dropped limbs and piled them on a cargo float. A cold downwash funneled through the orchard, the wind caught and guided by the habs towering south wall. Min pinged the microclimate sensors. A few more weeks of winter chill and the trees could start moving into bud break. Since I've got your attention, Kiki continued, you might want to look over the RFP coming up next. It's a big river remediation project funded by a private bank. You've never seen anything like it. You're going to disintegrate. Kiki shot her the request for proposal package with a flick of her fingernail. Min dropped out of the tree and spread the data over the orchard's carefully manicured ground cover. She hadn't seen a new project in ten years. The banks weren't interested. Calgary and all the other service habitats struggled to keep their ongoing projects alive. Some of the Habs, Edmonton notoriously, had managed the funding crisis so badly they'd starved themselves out. Before she'd even finished scanning the introductory material, Min's blood pressure was spiraling. A time travel project, aren't you excited? Kiki whispered. I nearly blew apart when I saw it. Half of the RFP made sense. Past state assessment, flow modeling, ecological remediation, that was her life's work. Familiar as her own skin. The rest didn't make sense at all. Mesopotamia, Tigris, Euphrates, words out of history. And time travel. Those two words raised the hairs on the back of her neck. Her biome flashed with blood pressure alerts. It's intriguing, whispered Min. Why didn't you send it to me earlier? Kiki jangled the paper clips. It's been in your queue for two days. I've been bugging your fake about it. You never look at your RFPs before the meeting. None of you do. Yeah, well, we're busy people, Min replied absently. When the plague babies had moved to the surface six decades earlier in 2205, they'd been determined to prove that humanity could escape the hives and hells and live above ground again in humanity's ancestral habitat. First, they directed bare bones habs high in the mountains, scraping together skeleton funding for proof of concept pilot projects. For the first few ecological remediation projects, the plague babies donated their billable hours, hoping to lure investment and spark population growth. It, it worked, not quite as quickly as they'd hoped, but over the decades, the Habs proved viable. Iceland and Cusco were booming. Calgary wasn't quite as successful, but momentum was building. Then, Turn developed time travel, and every above-ground initiative had stalled. Why would Tern get involved in river mediation now? Hadn't they ruined her life enough already? Min's biome stood an alert into the middle of her eye, blood pressure wildly fluctuating, as if Min couldn't tell. She'd been lightheaded ever since opening the RFP package. Her field of vision was narrowing. Her fingers itched to dial a little bit of a relief into her biome, but no, Min had promised her medtech she would not meddle with her hormonal balance. So instead of hitting herself with a jolt of adrenaline, she circled the peach tree's central leader with two legs and hung upside down, rough bark against her back and let the blood cascade to her brain. Back in the meeting, the fakes finished walking through the project. Progress reports. Nothing over budget, no problems. The fakes approved them all. Okay, said Kiki. On to new opportunities. Watch this, she whispered to Min. I can turn these fakes into scientists. Kiki fired the time travel RFP onto the table. The first one is for Min, Reaver Remediation and it's big, thousands of billable hours. All around the table, the fakes dropped away as Min's partners engaged with the text. Kiki grinned at Min, see, it's like magic. Font change. <laughs> <laughs> this is the RFP. Mesopotamian Development Bank Request for Proposal RFP 2267 16, Past State Assessment of the Mesopotamian Trench. The Mesopotamian Development Bank is embarking on a multi phase initiative to remediate the Mesopotamian Trench. The project will restore 100,000 kilometers of habitat, including the natural channels of the Euphrates and Tigris rivers, their tributaries, coastal wetlands, and terrestrial and aquatic species. The restoration project will support a network of arcologies across the habitat. The bank is seeking a multidisciplinary project team to execute a past state assessment supported by the Temporal Economic Research Node, (TERN), a division of the Centers for Excellence in Economic Research and Development, SEERD, The successful proponent team will assess and quantify the environmental state of Mesopotamia in 2024 BCE. The project will include complete geomorphological and ecological baselines, responses to stressors, and processes of change and adaptation. The data gathered will guide and inform future restoration projects in an effort to impose a regular climactic regime across the Mesopotamian drainage basin. The project is too good to pass up. Said Min. I want it. You can't be serious, Min, David said. He was out of breath, puffing hard. Nobody hates Seared and Turn more than you. Min pinged his location. David was cycling the icefield's guideway, climbing Sunwapta Pass without boost assist. It's a great job, said Min. I've already started working on the proposal. Kiki rolled her eyes. Min ignored her. This isn't a job, it's a joke, said Sarah. You can't do an ecological assessment on 100,000 square kilometers in three weeks. Three years wouldn't be enough. Jang shook his head. Maybe if we knew this bank, but we've never even heard of them. Kiki fired a documentary onto the table. The Mesopotamian Development Bank specializes in West Asian projects. They're designing a string of habs for the Zagros Mountains. Look at this design. You're going to collapse. The table exploded into a full-blown architectural simulation, the angles and planes of a huge ziggurat echoing the peaks and crags of the surrounding ranges. In comparison, Calgary was just a pimple on the prairie. Put the dock away, Kiki, said Sarah. It's just pretty pictures to attract investment. Kiki slapped the dock down. Min threw some numbers into an opportunity assessment matrix and fired it onto the table. If we win, the follow-on work could be massive, she said. Make the client happy and they'll keep us fed for decades. Min's partners reviewed the figures in the follow-on column. I like the numbers, said Clint, but the job's got to be wired. Kiki leaned across the table, her braids swinging. If they already know who they want to hire, why bother with the public procurement process? Private banks don't need procurement transparency. Easy, said Min. Min whispered, I'm handling this. I want this job, said Min. I've already started putting together my team, David said. If you win, your team can't pull out. The Bank of Calgary will peel the skin off of us. It won't be a problem, said Min. Who wouldn't jump at the chance to time travel? That's the end of chapter one. It won't be a surprise to you that they do get to time travel. (laughs) I'm going to take you right there. Um, so the time travel, Min, uh, figures out that what she needs to win this project is to give them a small team and a small team allows them to basically build a lot of, uh, buyback value into, into the project. So, um, she gets saddled with a, uh, tactical historian named Fabian, who, uh, who is basically their guide into the past. And um, and in uh, about the middle of the book, eh, a little bit before the middle, they actually do get to time travel. Turns project protocol simulations hadn't prepared Min for landing in 2024 20, 20, BCE. Swaddled in a felt coverall, her face layered with a thick gel mask, she expected to feel trapped, even stifled. Instead, she felt flayed, naked. Her eyes were glued shut with mucus, her muscles shivered, her skin stung as if stretched. Joints creaking, Min pulled herself over the edge of her sarcophagus. Her legs were locked protectively against her crotch, six coils stiff as fists against the soft flesh. She slipped her hands out of her sleeves and felt her neck. The goiter clung like a leech twitching. Her diaphragm cycled inert gas from the mask's bubble mouthpiece to her lungs, while the goiter fed oxygen into her trachea and flushed carbon dioxide from her blood. The mask's noise-canceling tech buzzed white noise in her ears. She pulled at the goiter. It detached from her throat and hung, swinging against her collarbone by the last few strands buried in her neck. Min eased her fingernails under the edges of the mask and pried it away from her temples, the side pieces released first, sliding out of her ears with a slurp. A faint breeze caressed her wet skin. More white noise now, ocean surf and wind. Using her fingernails, she tried to pot paw- pry the mask away from her chin, but it barely lifted. She stuck out her tongue to force the gel away from her lips. The piece snaking down her gullet gave slightly, enough to trigger her gag reflex. Bile prickled in her throat. Min wanted to launch the first satellite. The mask would peel off in a minute or two and then she'd be able to see, but she wasn't going to wait. She felt around until her fingertips brushed the satellite launcher case. She flipped the safety catches and pulled the arming tabs. They gave way with a satisfying pop and the ignition primed with a faint buzz. She pulled the launcher close to her chest, tucked the barrel behind her ears and clicked the triggers. It didn't fire. Something overhead was blocking the sights, likely a tree. She needed a better position. Min slid out of her psychophagus, flopping onto her belly. Cool sand cradled her torso. She wiggled, dragging the launcher behind her with one hand. Then she dug the butt of the housing into the sand, braced it between her elbow and gut, and hit the triggers again. Warmth bloomed against her stomach. The launcher buzzed and heaved. The mask peeled from her eyelids. She convulsed, violent, lung-bruising coughs. The mask peeled out of her throat and plopped between her uh, elbows. Eyelashes were embedded in the eye sockets. The goiter landed beside it, wiggling. She raked sand over it with the blade of her hand. The air smelled like biofiltration mats from the bowels of Calgary's water circulation system, with a whiff of something rotten like a dirty extruder nozzle, so oxygen-thick it seemed like the air might catch fire from any spark. Fabian bent over his sarcophagus, his face red and blotched. Who who got the first satellite up? he asked. Bet it was Min. Of course it was Min, said Hammond. He staggered over Kiki's sarcophagus, flipped it open, and reached in with both arms. I'm okay. Kiki's voice was muffled. Really dizzy, though. I don't know which way is up, and this thing is still wiggling. Kiki's hand appeared. She flipped her goiter on into the air. When it roiled to Fab- rolled to Fabian's feet, he kicked sand over it. Are you going to get number two up and number three, Min? He asked. Already on it. Min slammed a new cartridge into the launcher and dug its butt into the sand. When you're done, give it a rest. You've just time traveled. Stop trying to do it all and enjoy the view. She primed the ignition, braced the barrel, and thumbed the triggers again. The launcher's tip glowed orange and burped a fist-sized ball of fire into the sky. Min watched it fade and disappear overhead. Then she repeated the process with the third satellite. Ambient power in 90 minutes, said Fabian. Lan, in a hundred, drink some water. You can launch the rest of the satellites in a minute. He pushed a bottle of water into her hand. She guzzled it. Then finally, she looked around. Cobalt ocean and pale beach curved in a lazy arc toward rocky headlands. White rollers licked the shore. Pink clouds scudded across the horizon. And a faint green band marked the point where sky kissed water. Behind her, slender palm trees arced over the black carbon-fiber wireframe encasing their equipment. Gears on mechanical timers had released sarcophaguses onto the sand like swollen petals. Welcome to home beach, Fabian scanned the horizon with a pair of binoculars. <coughs> this is where we begin every new baseline. We're in the remote South Pacific. No settlements within a thousand kilometers, but I'm checking to be sure past population members do tend to wander. He lowered the binoculars and cast a worried glance at Kiki's sarcophagus. The only part of Kiki visible was her fist gripping Hamid's hand. How are you doing in there, Kiki? Fabian asked. Good now, Hamid gave me an anti-nauseant. She sat up and looked around. Wow, this is gorgeous. I'm going to check the other side of the island, Fabian said. Stay out of the water, the jellyfish are deadly. This is weird, Kiki said. No stream, no whispers, no message cue, nothing to ping. I'm used to juggling a dozen feeds and conversations, but now I can't even see my biome. She thrust her arms out in a wide circle. And no people, we're alone. If we want to gossip about each other, we'll have to do it the old fashioned way, Hammett said. He took Kiki's wrist between his fingers and counted her pulse, beating his foot on the sand to judge the rhythm. When a huge bird splashed across the water not a hundred meters offshore, he dropped her hand and jumped to his feet. A frigate bird, he said. Where's Fabian? I need those binoculars. Min dragged herself over to the wireframe and heaved a lever. A storage compartment slid open. She dug out a slender telescope and flipped it to Hamid. He lifted the scope and tracked the bird as it circled the beach. A frigate bird, he repeated. Wow, I'm never going home. Scene break. Hamid identified five more bird species before ambient power hit. Min's biome bloomed in the bottom left of her eye, all green, no alerts. Her legs unfurled, and the instant she was mobile, she scooted down to the shore to dangle a toe in the warm water. Thumb-sized jellyfish clustered in the shallows, their thread-like tentacles translucent against the creamy sand, their bodies and arms a delicate apricot. Kiki skipped down to the beach to join Min and then ran along the water's edge laughing, leaving a trail of footprints in the wet sand. When the land came up, Min's feeds and bookmarks stacked into their usual positions on the bottom right of her visual field. Min booted a seer and put it on the upper left. It began identifying species right away. She grabbed a camera and sent it spinning overhead. From a 10 meter elevation, she could survey the whole island. Home Beach was the right size for a three week ecological assessment. 100,000 square kilometers was ridiculous. The sheer enormity of the project loomed overhead. What had she been thinking this was going to be a disaster? Min took a deep breath. She always got vertigo at the start of every big project. It would work out fine, one task at a time. Satellites are streaming. Fabian called out. He fired the feed across the horizon. Home Beach was at the far eastern edge of a widespread archipelago. The feed was dotted with population markers and estimates of human biomass, but nothing within 500 kilometers. Markers traced a flotilla all alone in the wide ocean far from land. Kiki zoomed in. People were clustered in the open boats like seeds in tiny pods. She magnified the feed until the people were fuzzy splotches. I wish we could see their faces, Kiki said. Min collapsed the feed and replaced it with the day's work breakdown. (coughs) It's time to start ticking boxes, she said. While Kiki fabbed construction elements, Min and Hamid assembled their pocket hab, a temporary dome with sleep cubbies, nutrition and hygiene support. Fabian began assembling the skip and its had. Floats did the heavy work, shuttling components from the wireframe and moving newly fab pieces to the assembly sites. The pocket hab was basic, tiny two level dome with negative pressure system to keep the bugs out. Furniture minimal benches around a communal table down the stairs and four sleep cubbies above. <coughs> Kiki had added a green leaf pattern to the dome's skin, echoing the shades and shape of the Thanataki palms. Viewed from the beach, the Hab blended into the landscape. It was an illusion, though. Their footprint was already on the ecosystem, heavier than men liked. Water recirculation took grey water from shower to toilet, and sewage went straight into a tank with no treatment, just a hose to exhaust the gas away from camp. Their roots between Fab, Hab, Skip, and Beach were already cutting through the ground cover. Min was keeping an eye on a pirata growing near one of the trails, not for the shrub itself, though its deep red flower and elongated pistils were impressive, but for the unidentifiable clusters of mold growing on its stalk. She'd have to take a sample home for curiosity's sake. Fabian sent the Skip on its test burn and joined Min and Kiki in the hab. (coughs) They watched the egg-shaped amber skip, slowly follow its invisible power beam and disappear into the sky. How do you keep tourists occupied during setup? Kiki asked as she scooped lunch into her bowl. They get bored with all this fabbing and start wandering off. We keep tourists under wrap until everything's ready. On day trips, we only support nutrition and hygiene. Since we're already dropping into the same baselines, we don't have to worry about surprises from weather or past populations. We've seen it all before. Today is new though, Kiki said. Kiki was half buried in the local satellite feed, tracking population markers, zooming in on a large island village where individuals moved like ants across the beach. New to you, I mean, you've never lived through today before. He smiled patiently. I haven't lived through it yet. Anything could happen. This is uncharted territory. It's getting less uncharted all the time, Min said. She copied Kiki's feed and collapsed it to a globe. Half the planet was dark, the poles grayed out, and large weather systems blotted the sphere with milky pinwheels. But most of the satellites were in position, lighting up the continents with data. Dawn crept across Asia. Min zoomed in on the Yangtze River, its vast, braided delta and wide course lit with a rosy glow. She could easily immerse herself in the rivers of the world, but she didn't have to do it now. The satellite feeds were downloading to the information core. Nothing trapped would get lost, and she had other responsibilities. On the other side of the world, it was midnight over Mesopotamia. The satellites there, the most powerful ones, were only beginning to extend their sensor array. In another six hours, they would be fully operational and the Tigris and Euphrates would reveal themselves. Min slapped down the feed and shot the workflow across the table. The shelter is fabbed and the satellites are all in place, she said. Our first landing in Mesopotamia isn't on the schedule for two more days, but I want to move it up. Kiki can fab the sampling equipment next. Kiki nodded, her mouth full. When does the skip get back? Min asked Fabian. He fired the skip feed onto the table. The dashboard indicators were all green. Five hours looks like the fuselage is curing properly so far. Kiki scraped the last spoonful out of her bowl and then set it on the floor in front of the hygiene bot. Where are you sending it? she asked. Fabian raised a finger as he finished chewing. He swallowed and said, I always send my test burns to Stonehenge. Bring it right down in the middle. Kiki stared. What about the people there? They get out of the way. (laughs) Fabian picked a bit of congealed protein out of his bowl. That's not right, Kiki said. You can't do that. Two tiny furrows appeared between Kiki's eyebrows. She looked to Min for support. "Mm, I assume it's part of Turn's health and safety protocol, Min said. Hitting a hard target tests the guidance system. No, Fabian said. Stonehenge is my own choice. "'Why? It's cruel,' said Kiki. Fabian tapped his spoon on the table, clearly irritated. "'Cruel? They practice human sacrifice. Want to see the docks?' Kiki glared at him. "'Reroute the skip. You can't terrorize people for fun.' "'What if they attack the skip?' Min asked. "'They could damage it.' Fabian shrugged. "'If the skip can't handle Bronze Age weapons, we shouldn't be flying in it.' He balled his fists on the table." Did you fab the skip fuselage correctly? Kiki's shoulders climbed up to her ears. Of course, I'm an experienced tech. Would you fly in it without testing? No, that would be stupid, but you can cure and stress test the fuselage without terrifying people. Fabian pointed his spoon at her. Health and safety is my responsibility. I know how to do my job. Kiki turned her attention back to the feed where tiny blocks of people were just going about their days. Fine. Fine. She said, just don't you try it with these people. Thank you.
2: Thank you, both of you, all of you. Thank you for coming out. Happy spring. (laughs) Hang out, you don't have to leave, you know, it's like, you know, whatever you want to do. Is it still snowing out
1: yeah,
0: there? Yeah, it did.
2: What's mm-hmm. like it look uh, like out there, Ellen? It's uh, snow. <laughs> but I don't see it. But it's not, you know.
0: It's going to taper off.
2: It will. Only another 10 hours. <laughs> so anyway, thanks for coming. Hang out. And we'll see you next month. Thank you.
0: You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month!